Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a molded pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him Hello, my friends, and welcome to episode 4-349 of the Run Run Live podcast. Today we chat with Chrissy Simmons, who made the grave mistake of telling me on Facebook that she ran a qualifying marathon using my Marathon BQ training plan. Of course, I coerced her into an interview. The audio quality is a bit off because we were using the telephone to record, and most of the time now I can use a Skype plug-in to record digital audio, but we couldn't swing it. So think of it as a quaint trip down technology memory lane. When we used to use the telephone, we used to pick up that phone, and we'd call each other over twisted pair copper wire plain old telephones. Remember that? I like to talk to folks who have used the plan successfully because when I was writing it down, I never really knew if it would work for other people or if it was just some strange manifestation of my own personal demons. It thoroughly tickles me to hear it working and to hear people learning the things that I learned by going through it. And when you boil it down, it's really about speed. You know, I've listened to a couple interviews of Shalane and the other marathoners since the Olympics, and they train up to 100 to 120 miles a week. And most of it is varying forms of long tempo, which is very specific to the marathon distance. In essence, their training is specific practice for the race they're looking to run. And they are training to find and stay on that edge of the pace where they maximize their results without crashing. And they don't do a lot of speed work. So you might say, why? Well, because they're already fast. They're coming up from the track or other shorter distances. They already know how to run fast. That's not what they're training for. The amateur mid-packer marathoner is different. We've never maybe run track in school. We don't know how to run fast. Even those of us who may have run 20 to 30 marathons, we know how to run. We just need to get faster if we want to qualify for Boston or any other race. And the key light bulb idea for you is this. Everyone is capable of running fast. They just have never practiced running fast. 
They don't know how. And that's the main question I addressed in Marathon BQ. How do I take 20 to 40 minutes off my marathon finishing time? And the answer logically is to run faster. But how? And the answer is to practice rigorously running faster. It's simple. So not all simple ideas are powerful, but most powerful ideas are simple. In section one, I'll chat a bit about how to experiment with speed, not just for the marathon, but in general as a component of your toolkit, something to play with. In section two, I'm going to talk about your personal finances. Why? Because I just went through a long avoided financial planning process, and I think I got some of it figured out, and I thought I'd do you the service of telling you what I learned. So how's my training going? Well, as it turns out, fairly well. And the big part of that is that I've stayed on the nutrition plan that I began as a 30-day project in August. I dipped under 170 pounds last week, which is as light as I've been since the 1980s. And that really has had a positive effect on my training. It has a dual impact. The healthy lean diet has my body reacting better to workouts and the weight loss has put a pop back into my pace and the net result is I'm able to train at a pace that is frankly a lot more familiar and comfortable to me and I'm guessing that I'll benefit from that. So I raced the Spartan Beast last weekend, and you should get a nice long race report on the podcast feed if everything works out. It should be there. should be there, and I think you'll enjoy that. That was a hoot. And I followed up with a nice 3-hour, 21-ish mile long run the week after. I still don't have a lot of volume, but I'm going to continue on this nutrition plan through to the Portland, Oregon Marathon in October, and we'll see what happens. I have a course at home that I do most of my workouts on, and it runs down some back roads that are fairly light in traffic, and it's rolling hills through neighborhoods. And one of the modest 1950s ranch houses that I run by has a sign for one of the current political candidates out in his front lawn, out by the wall, the stone wall that we all have in our New England yards. And I say his because I've seen him. He's a white guy about my age. The yard and the house are well-kept, but not overly fastidious, and he drives an older model red Volvo sedan. He and his wife live there on that classic suburban quarter-acre lot, and it doesn't look like there's any kids there. They probably moved out, and he had his sign up since the primaries. And I shake my head when I run by, and I wonder what has happened to him to make him so angry. And I wonder what his narrative is. And I've often thought, I've run through this scenario in my mind when I'm out training. I've often thought about starting one of my speeches by talking about all the challenges I've had to overcome in my life. And, I, and I'd say it like that with great seriousness and gravitas about how hard it was to grow up white and male in the suburbs of the richest state. On the, in the richest country in the world. And I'd continue to spin my miserable yarn about how I had to cope with being healthy and well-fed and being provided the best education by loving parents who were in a stable long-term marriage. And I'd wonder how long the audience would stay with me. 
These are confusing times for many, but if you look beyond that confusion, if you can look maybe within, you will find abundance. And I just wish more people would see that abundance. And I got to ask you, do you believe in abundance? Do you see that abundance? On with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. Getting faster. I must come off as some sort of crank with the number of times I talk about speed work. Like I'm obsessed with speed. Like the only thing that is important, the only goal, the only reward is to get faster. Well, I'm not. I think racing and speed are just one of the myriad of things in running that can be rewarding. Running is a rich tapestry of benefits, and certainly you can get many, if not most of those benefits, without any speed. What I'm saying is that I don't want you to just assume speed is beyond your reach. Like you're looking over the fence and seeing a wonderland that you are forbidden from. I'm saying speed is within your reach, and it's a worthy thing to play at. It's a wonderful learning experience. It's a clean and direct manifestation of the mind-body connection in our sport. You just have to find the keys to open the gate. And I would hate for you to go to your grave assuming you can't do things that you are certainly capable of doing. Why not try? What's the worst that can happen? It hurts, you pull something. It doesn't sound like much risk to me. So how do you get faster? It is relatively simple. And I'm not just talking about the marathon. Speed is applicable at any distance. I have a social media friend who spent one summer practicing speed and took four minutes off his 5K finish time. It's like karate or a foreign language. It's a learned skill. You won't ever be as good as a native speaker or a gifted athlete, but you can get that 60, 70, 80% improvement that will be a revelation to you. So how do you get faster? Well, it's easy. You practice being fast. And with all things, the first step is to stop and open up your mind to the possibility that you can do it, that you can run faster. And fast here is a relative term. Like most of our barriers to improvement, our brains are our biggest challenge. Most people who've never run competitively just assume they're slow. Open yourself up to the possibility that you're fast. Don't fight yourself. Next, we get to define for you what is fast. And in my example above, my friend took four minutes off his 5K. What is that? That's more than a minute per mile of average pace. That's a good goal at any distance. I'd argue that it's harder to do that in a 5K than in a marathon. So pick a distance you like and set your goal to take a minute off your pace. How's that? Open your mind up to the possibility that you can do that. Next, we're going to practice. And this means, all this means, is over the course of three months... You're going to practice running fast once or twice a week. How do you do that? Where do you do that? It's simple. Find a track or a flat bit of road. Measure out 200 meters, 400 meters, 800 meters, 
1,200 meters, 1,600 meters, or you can do it if you're in the United States. You can do it with your odometer on your car. Just measure out tenths of miles. Once or twice a week, over the course of 12 weeks, go out there and run at a minute to a minute 30 faster than your current PR pace for that distance that you're targeting. And as you are practicing, you will discover some new things to you. First, it's hard. You won't be able to hold that pace initially until your body figures it out. And by the third week, rest, rest assured, by the third week, it will feel easier. Your body has to figure it out. So you start with the shorter distances, the 200s, the 400s, and you move up to the 800s. And you can stop at the 800s, unless your target is a half marathon or longer. For the longer races, you may want to do the 1200s and the 1600s at a slightly lower or slower pace. And the second thing you'll learn is that your form will change to accommodate the speed. You will naturally move forward onto the forefoot and take more rapid strides with a higher knee lift. Your body will figure out how to run fast efficiently. And you get to keep that learned efficiency forever. Your body will change to accommodate the speed. Your legs will develop denser, fast-twitch muscles. Your heart and lungs will adjust their thresholds. The human body is an amazingly adaptable machine. It will figure it out and optimize for the activity it is being asked to perform. And then your mind will change. Through this practice, you will begin to become familiar with the effort level and discomfort level of speed, and it will cease to be scary. It will instead become a strength for you. And that's it. You want more details? Okay, in the first couple weeks, start with two miles worth of speed and gently progress up to five miles worth, two weeks before your race. That's all the detail I'm going to give you. <laughs> if you have also defined yourself as a slow runner, if you have never practiced being fast, I guarantee you are in for a revelation. You may not take a minute per mile off your PR pace, but you will learn things about yourself and build new capabilities that will add to the richness of your appreciation for our sport. And now for today's featured interview. So, Chrissy, you went out and did the Marathon BQ training plan recently, huh? I did. About 10 days ago, I guess it was exactly 10 days ago, I ran the Erie Marathon. Yeah, I've run that marathon. That's a great marathon for that plan because it's almost entirely flat. It's like two long yeah. loop, flat loop courses on the island. It's, uh, yeah, it's I was good, told it was a great race to qualify. It's a little, um, I don't know the word I'm looking for, but boring comes to mind towards the end. It gets kind of long towards the end. Well, lucky but, for uh, me, yeah. I was struggling so hard by the end that it wasn't boring. <laughs> yeah, but you qualified. I did. Yay. I qualified Yay. by over five minutes. Yes, I'm in. So give me the uh, 200 words on who you are and what you do and, and how you get to this point. 200 words. <laughs> well, first of all, I am 34 years old, which makes my qualifying time. By the time I run Boston, I'm um, 340 because I'll be 35 by then. I live and work in a small town in Kentucky called Winchester, and I work at a company called DSM, which is a global science company, and our group primarily works with microbial fermentation processes for the purpose sure. of manufacturing human and pet nutritional supplements. Cool. I started running about eight years ago when I trained for and ran my first 5K ever. 
when I was able to go up to my first marathon about six years ago. It was the Flying Pig in Cincinnati, Ohio, which I've done every year since my first one. It's my favorite race. That's reasonably close to where you are, right? Yeah. Since then, I've run 24 or 25 races that were marathon length or even longer. And some of those were with serious training efforts, but a lot of them were just for fun. I'd also like to run a marathon in all 50 states. So that was one of my goals in addition to qualifying for Boston. So I guess you could say you got the bug, right? You yeah. You got the marathon yeah, bug after your first couple. I did. Once I got there, that's where I was. I've tried a couple of ultra marathons, but the marathon distance is my favorite. And I enjoy all kinds of outdoor activities, but definitely running is my primary hobby. Yeah. And so had you trained to try to qualify before? No, my first marathon back in 2010 was like a 438. So I was a long way off from even thinking about qualifying for Boston. It was always a goal, but it was not really a serious goal. And it wasn't until like 2014, I think, that I actually broke the four-hour mark. So after that, I realized it was a possibility, but... I didn't do any more training than just increasing the number of miles I ran during the week. I was never very serious about any kind of speed-specific workouts. So were you that. Doing so I slowly any, got better. Were you doing any other uh, training plans, like, uh, you um, know, Hal Higdon kinda, or Runner's World or any of those popular ones? Yeah, I mean, I would try, like, variations of those. And my issue was it was really easy for me to set out to say I was going to run, whether it was 5 miles or 22 miles, but... I started getting into details of this much of it should be at this pace, and I had a hard time really, I guess, focusing that much on training. So I would find plans online, but then only kind of half-heartedly follow them. So what led you to the My Training Plan? So once my friend asked me to do this race with her, I looked on Amazon.com, and I read about a couple of different books. Like, I, I was serious. I was going to try to qualify for Boston. I needed a real plan that I could really actually follow for once. And it looked like good reviews and the comments really seemed to speak to me. And so what I liked about the plan was that it did look really simple to follow. And I had a big fear of training in the summer because I'd never really run very much in the summer because it's just hot and my times are slow. And I couldn't imagine, first of all, training for a race in those kind of conditions. And then even in mid-September running a race when the temperatures hadn't cooled off. But the plan looked like it was a few five-milers and then there was some fast workouts, but there was breaks in between. So there was only the one long run that I had to worry about on the weekends. And those could be done early enough that the temperature wouldn't be a big factor. Yeah. Put those on the calendar for the morning where it's nice and cool, right? Every training plan I've ever followed had a long run on the weekend. So that wasn't anything new, but I like that there wasn't a a 14 miler on a Wednesday afternoon in this plan. Although some of those tempo workouts were really sneaky and added up pretty quick, I learned. But at the time, looking at the plan on paper, it looked like it would be very manageable. You're kind of in the sweet spot for who I intended that for, which is to somebody who is very a competent runner and knows what they're doing, but needs to take 10 to 20 minutes off their time, right? Yeah. And really hasn't played with speed work before. You know how to run. You just need to get faster, right? (laughs) Exactly. I trained with a couple of friends for this race who weren't nearly as experienced. Uh, One of them ran their first marathon and did most of the workouts with me, and one was doing their third marathon. And they had really good times, too. Did you get good weather for the uh, marathon? For the race? Oh, yeah. Any other year or any other training cycle, it still would have felt like a warm race to me, but I was obsessively watching that forecast for Erie. And at one point, I mean, they thought the high was going to be up in the 87 degrees, but... 
and actually turned out to be a lot nicer than that and a lot nicer than the stuff I had trained through. So I was pretty well acclimated anyway, but I was actually chilly at the start and finish and then just a little bit warm during the second race of that race. You're right. It helps to train in the heat because you get acclimated. You get a cool morning in the fall. It actually feels nice, right? Right. I mean, exactly. That was a surprise to me that I could actually train in the heat and race in a relatively warm race compared to other ones I had done. So to run a 335 or a 340, you got to be doing your tempo runs, those 1600s at like seven minute miles and the speed work at like, what, 630s, somewhere in there? Well, actually, actually, I was running, I guess, seven and 730s. Okay. Although like towards the end, they got a little faster and I was able to consistently run them a little bit under both of those. Yeah, I did my math wrong there. So how did that feel when you first started doing that? I mean, how did those first couple speed workouts feel? Did you feel like, oh, my God, what have I got myself into? When there was only two, yes. I went to my first – I did my speed work on Monday, so I think I shifted the schedule a little bit. That was my very first workout that I did in this plan, and I had two seven-minute miles that I was aiming to do. And I showed up with one of my friends who was doing it with me, and we had a conversation before that it says seven minutes. We're going to try to do seven minutes if – that doesn't work out. We'll just adjust the whole plan to do what we can do. We showed up and we did seven minute miles for those first two intervals. And that's what we stuck with for the rest of the training plan. But I wasn't sure I could do it until that very first workout. Yeah, it takes a few weeks to find your pace. Those first ones, it's hard to maintain your form for the full 1600, right? Yeah. And even though it was only two, I mean, I remember going home after that workout and messaging my friends. I felt almost drunk. Like it felt difficult. (laughs) That's how I described it. I just felt really loopy, but it did get a lot easier as it went on, even though it added up. Right. And then the thing that always amazed me was when you got towards the end and you had a taper workout of two or three miles at speed, how easy it felt. Yeah, it was like the same as the first week, the same number, but it was nothing. And I felt like I could have done so many more by the end. Right. And how did your pacing feel in your marathon when you got out there at that field? Were you able to find a nice pace and stick with it? I think so. That was one of the things I was nervous about with doing this plan is that I had practiced so much at seven and seven and a half minutes for short distances, but now I needed to be able to pull out like an 810 or 811 pace for a longer distance. But the first 20-something miles, it was no problem maintaining that right. pace and faster. And it right. wasn't until the end where it started to feel difficult. But by that point, I was already doing the math of what I needed to do to finish this thing in time, and it was going to be no problem. Right. You have so much in the bank that it's easy. Yeah. And that's what I that's what I found on the pacing. It's a little counterintuitive to say running faster makes the race pace feel normal, right? But it does. Right. It doesn't feel strange, I guess. It doesn't feel foreign. You think it would feel foreign because you haven't done a lot of race pace running, but it doesn't. Exactly. It feels fine. It feels easy. It feels like a jog. I was convinced after this plan I could run like a fast 5K, but I was a little unsure of whether or not it would pay off in the marathon. That being said, you should go find a 5K and a 10K someplace to do that because it is really good training for a 5 or a 10K. Yeah, some of these paces are faster than I would run a 5K. I'm curious to see how that works out there. You should be able to run a 10K in your tempo pace. What was that, a 720, 730, something like that? 730-ish, yeah, a little faster. Yeah, I don't know what your 10K PR is, but you should be able to do a 730 and 10K. That would be a new PR for me. I think I'm like a 740, 10K. I don't run that many, but... Yeah, so speed work is good for you 
one of the things that it's also good for is it tends to clean up your form. Did you find that your form got cleaner as you did this stuff? Probably. I guess I didn't really notice it in training, but I know sometimes I look at the after marathon race photos and I just look like I'm struggling so much and slouchy and just hunched over. But like all my race photos from this race looked really good and I felt really good. I think yeah. I had to help out with form. Right, because running faster on the track like that at a specific pace, it forces your form into a really regular form. It's almost like a strength workout. It's almost like a core workout, right? You don't know it, but you get a core workout as well. Yeah. That's cool. So what was your um, race strategy for the race? Did you just do a steady state, or did you try to go out slow and finish strong, or what was the strategy? Well, I end up lining up pretty close behind the 335 pacer in the race. And I've never had much luck with following a pacer in a race because I don't think I run like that consistently. So I wanted to run with him, but it was so crowded around that guy. Like everybody wants to run a 335. So I got ahead of him and just did my best to maintain the 810 or faster pace that I needed to finish this thing in 335, which I did until yeah. the very end. Around mile 25, that dude passed me again. I think he was shooting for a 334 because I ended up finishing about 30 seconds after he did. And I ended up with a 334, 30-something. So that gives you five and a half minutes when you jump age groups. Yeah, yeah. I ended up with a little over five, 520-something over my Boston time. So I was able to qualify. I was able to register last Friday during the first week of the registration process. I'm on the confirm list. I don't have to deal with the anxiety that people that registered this week might be experiencing. Uh, you're coming to Boston in the spring, huh? I am. I have booked a room. I need to look into flights and et oh, cetera. That's, awesome. that's yeah, awesome. I'm excited. Yeah, you'll love it. It's something. I guess I would say don't try to race it. It's a hard course. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. I mean, train as if you're going to race it, but then don't have any expectations and try to go out yeah. slow because the hills just eat people up. It's a weird thing, because... too, I guess, as far as what time I'll actually start the race. I guess it's just a whole other experience doing this race, the crowds. Right. And people get so jacked up and they spend the whole weekend walking around. It's not optimal racing conditions. So I'd say just train for it as if you're going to race it and then go in without expectations and have fun all weekend. Don't worry about it. Yeah. No, I think that that'll be fine for me. (laughs) Yeah. Because people get sucked out. Then they do the 10 mile death march in through Newton and that's no fun. One of the things that always concerns me with this particular training plan, and, and the reason I can't do it anymore is because of the, the injury factor. It is a significant amount of speed work and a significant amount of volume and quality. How did you keep from getting injured or did you get injured and what what did you do there? So I've been really lucky in the last several years where I've only had a few minor injuries, but I, I'm also hyper aware if something's going wrong just to back off or do the stretching or the rolling or just whatever you need. So actually I mentioned that I started this plan with a couple of friends and they actually had to cut back on some of the training because they were having some issues that they were concerned about going into their first and third race ever. I just tried to be really aware of what my body was telling me. And I did do a lot of stretching and a lot of just resting if I needed to. But overall I was concerned that the new volume and speed might cause injuries, but I was lucky, I think. Is this more volume in terms of miles than you had done before? For the summertime, for sure. But for my regular racing schedule, no, I would do up to 50 miles per week. 
okay. pretty regularly, but at yeah. a slower pace. All right. So I think that one peaks out somewhere in the 50s, so not too different. Did you have to skip any of the workouts? Not because of injury. But I think I mentioned before, I did a couple of races during this training plan. Like it was an 8K and a 10K, and I right. opted to skip the speed work those weeks. But otherwise, I found this plan so easy to actually just stick to and I knew where I needed to be and at what time. And the only question was how many miles was I going to do that night? Yeah, it's easy to turn into a habit because it's so simple. It makes it mindless. That's kind of why I set it up that way because I just didn't have a lot of time in my life to figure out workouts. So just at the time when I I was your age, when I first qualified, I just wanted something where I, I knew I could do the work, but I didn't want to have to think about it. I love that part of it. I've done training plans where sometimes Friday's a rest day and some days you need to do this type of workout and take this other rest day or some days you're doing this work. I like that I just showed up to a place and was, I need to do five right. days. Right. It's this night, therefore it's yeah. these work. How many? So what about yeah. um, your nutrition and your kind of body mass as you went through this? I used to find that I would lose five to 10 pounds throughout the course of the cycle just from the calories out of trying to get this volume and quality in. Did you uh, do anything special with your nutrition? No, I hate being hungry when I run. So I, I just tried to eat. And so my snacks are pretty consistent. And my nutrition is not something that I can really preach about, nor is my weight. I don't really monitor that very closely. But I did feel I looked like I was staying in shape, even though I was just snacking constantly to avoid doing a workout hungry. What do you think uh, overall? What, what's your impression? And uh, what'd you like about it? What'd you hate about it? <laughs> like I said, I like the simplicity of it. I've never looked up a plan before and started it and finished it. Like, I really feel like even though there was a couple of exceptions, I really stuck closely to this plan because it was easy to do. I really grew to hate speed work and tempo workouts. And <laughs> But the funny thing is, we would talk about this. Once this is done, we're never doing the pace again. We're never going to meet at the spot again. We're never doing any of this again. But now that it's been a couple of weeks since my last workout, I'm kind of looking forward to incorporating at least some of that back into my schedule. Because I do think it was quite an accomplishment to finish some of those. And I think it really paid off. At the time, I didn't love it, but I think I've grown to appreciate it. Yeah, Yeah, it's kind of like taking your medicine, but you do miss it because there's a certain, again, simplicity and purity to being at the track and doing speed work, right? Yeah. It takes all the variability and all the cheating out of it. You you either do it or you don't. It's not like you can fake it. And it really so. taught me to question what my limitations really are. Because as I mentioned, the first time I showed that speed workout, I don't even know if I can do one seven-minute mile. So we're just going to figure this out. And then by the end of it, I was doing four or five of them with a little break in between, like no problem. I don't yeah, think I would have just decided to do that on my own and without I think the plan telling me the, I should try it. And I think that's one of the things that I learned in general when I was going through this in my 30s is, wait a second, if I can do this, what else can I do, right? What else am I thinking about? I'm assuming that I can't do that. I, I must be wrong because I can do this, right? Right. And I, said, I, was, yeah, I, was, I was doing all that math at the end of my marathon. All right, if you just do a, you can slow down to a nine-minute pace now if you want to, and you can totally <laughs> finish this race in your time. And then I would hit like an 8.30. I'm sure if I had told myself you need it whatever time, I would have done whatever I could to make that happen. Definitely. So physically, in, I think it helps mentally. Yeah, I have been in that position so many times in the last 10 miles going, well, 
I could run eight, 10 minute miles from here and still get my time. Right. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. All right, Chrissy, this has been a great chat. Um, thank you very much for talking to me. I'm always interested because I don't know, I wrote this up and it was my own experience and I wasn't really sure whether it was uh, something that would be helpful for other people. And I'm super glad it has been. So that's yeah. great. I'm so excited for you coming out to Boston. Glad I could be a part of that. Yep. See you all. All right. All right. Super. We'll talk to you soon. Okay. Thanks. Let me know if Bye. you need anything. All right. Absolutely. All right. Cheers. Bye. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. Financial independence. A quick public service dispatch. Okay, I'm not a lawyer or an accountant or a financial expert of any sort. I have always had this as a blind spot in my life. I'm not illiterate. I can read a financial statement. I've worked plenty of contracts and negotiated deals, but none of that was my money. Personally, I've never become an expert in investing or any of that. In one sense, I knew that I wasn't qualified and mindfully stayed away from doing too much, understanding my own limitations. My game plan has always been to make enough money, and if I need more money for something, I just make more money. And that seemed to work pretty well. Now that I'm coasting into a different season of my life, I decided to make personal finances one of my projects. And my approach to these projects is to research and read as much as I can, until I have a working knowledge. And the purpose of this piece is to share with you what I've learned in hopes that it may give you something you can use. So a couple years ago, I heard Tony Robbins pitching his new book, Money, and I decided I would read it. Not only that I would read it, but learn it and put that knowledge into action. And this was certainly a bigger chore than I thought it would be. The book was 800 pages or so, hardcover monstrosity. And I pushed through it because I'm stubborn that way. It was really more like three books. One talked about money strategy and tactics. One was your typical Tony Robbins cheerleading rah-rah stuff. And the last was a set of interviews with most successful financial people in the world. So based on this, I engaged with Peter Malouk's fiduciary service, creative planning, to sort out my personal finances. And again, as a service to you, I'm going to attempt to give you a simple rendition of some of the key things that I've learned. So number one, yes, compound interest is important. Every book on finances I've cracked open in my lifetime has started the exact same way, talking about the power of compound interest. And you got to ask why. Well, it's important when you talk about money accumulation over time. If you invest a dollar at 10% return, you get a dollar 10 at the end of the year, but the next year you get another 10% of the dollar 10, etc., and your money accumulates arithmetically over time. So why do you care? Why do you care? Right? Ugh, math. Don't talk about math. Because a little bit of money invested today becomes a lot of money as time goes on and you don't have to do anything. Just like they have always told you, investing consistently from an early age will put you in good stead later in life. So nothing surprising here. But I'm sure there are still some folks who don't understand the power of compound interest, and it works both ways. Small expenses over time have an outsized compound negative effect 
on your accumulation of money or a compounded opportunity cost. So tiny changes in interest rate in the short run have a large impacts in the long run because they compound. Very simple, very straightforward. And this brings us to our second point, our second learning, which is most investment vehicles have hidden fees that are so small or hidden, so hidden so well that you don't realize you're paying them. And those fees compounded over time make a big chunk of money. And again, that's pretty basic. Which brings us to our third point, our third learning, which is you can't trust anyone. <laughs> so in this industry, the vast majority of financial advisors actually work for or affiliated with the companies that sell financial products. And I'm sure they're all honest, motivated, wonderful people, but they get part of their compensation for selling that company's in-house products. That profit motive for them will work against your accumulation of wealth in the form of less performance, higher fees. So it's a conflict of interest. The finance companies know that none of us want to think about this stuff, so they make it easy for us. Just buy this fund. It's perfect for you if you're retiring in 2030. And most of us fail by default options that nibble away at our future finances because we just don't know what to do and we know we can't trust anyone. Which brings us to the fourth point, the fourth learning. I know I can start to sound like Tony Robbins, right? That is only a pure fiduciary who is selling no affiliated products actually has your interest, pun intended, in their interest. They charge a flat fee to give you advice. And what is that advice? Well, it's how to structure your portfolio of assets which are stocks and bonds and mutual funds and IRAs and real estate and insurance, etc., so that it meets your projected financial requirements in the future, i.e., you have your money when you need it. Whether you plan to retire in the traditional sense or not, they give you a portfolio, right, a basket full of stuff that balances risk and return at the lowest cost. And then they periodically look at it and rebalance it to make sure you stay on track. For this service, and it's a pure service, they charge you an annual percentage of your assets, typically 1% or less. So, for example, if you have $500,000 in your IRA, they would charge you five grand a year to manage it. And that may seem like a lot of money, but typically you're paying more than that in hidden fees already, so you're not, so it's a wash. And you're getting a better, um, a better portfolio decision. If you don't think you're getting your value from the service, you can cancel it without notice. And you're only responsible for how much of the year has gone by. So it's not like you're locked into anything with a fiduciary. And another thing they will give you recommendations on is insurance, life insurance, any other type of insurance. If you were to drop dead in a trail race tomorrow, would your family be able to survive? Again, you don't buy that from the fiduciary. They give you recommendation and you go buy it from someone like SBLI or somebody like that. Finally, they give you advice on estate planning, which is very important because if or when you die, what happens to your wealth? Unless you have done some estate planning, the government decides what happens to you at your wealth, and you can bet they'll get their share. The fiduciary will give you a recommendation on creating a will, maybe even a living trust to make sure that any wealth you have accumulated doesn't end up in probate court.
So why do you care about any of this? Maybe you say, I don't have enough money to worry about any of this. It's too late for me. I don't want to talk about it. I know the answers are going to be horrible and I'd just rather keep on paying my bills. Well, it doesn't really matter how much money you have or don't have. It's worth understanding where you are so that you can have the certainty of knowing. If the answer is bad, then at least you know the answer and you can work with that. It's never too late. Most people don't realize that the process of wealth accumulation is heavily back-end loaded in your career and life, so those last 10 or 20 years have an outsized impact. And you may be surprised. I certainly learned a lot from putting the numbers down with someone competent in the lingua franca of personal finance. So imagine how much better you'll sleep when you know your spouse or your kids will be taken care of. The fruits of your labor will be harvested ripe and glowing for the ones you love. So don't be afraid of this subject matter. Don't hide your head in the sand. Create a project. Get it under control. Sleep easy. Now hopefully you didn't need this advice and you got to skip this part. But then if you didn't, maybe it had some value for you. And feel free to buy stock in the Run Run Live public offering. Or, hey, become a member. <laughs> Pay the piper. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. How about that, you, my abundant friends, have sped your way to the end of episode 4-349 of the Run Run Live podcast. Do you feel faster? I do. Next up for me is the Portland, Oregon. I have to say Oregon now because I said Portland and people thought I was running in Maine, and that's the same weekend, so it's confusing the Portland, Oregon Marathon in two weeks. And I don't know what to expect, but I'm hopeful. I'm always hopeful. Travel marathons are always a bit of a wild card for me, but we'll see how it goes. Depending on how things go in Oregon, I may look for a November race. Other than that, there's the tradition of volunteering at the Bay State Marathon, also in October and either volunteering or running at the Groton Town Forest 10-miler. And then, of course, the traditional Air Fire Department 5K on Thanksgiving morning. We all have our traditions. One new development is that, yes, I am moving forward and setting up a website for the Groton Marathon, and I'll read you the copy. That's what the marketing people call the words, the copy. Quote, the Groton Marathon was founded in December of 2013 by veteran runner Chris Russell. He was in the midst of a marathon-a-month streak in honor of the Boston Marathon bombings from April 2013 to April 2014. The marathon he was scheduled to run in December was canceled due to snow. Frustrated at the lack of convenient distance events in Massachusetts area, Chris grabbed a couple running buddies and created the first Groton Marathon to keep his streak alive. The run has repeated each year since... This year, 2016, we want to open up the race to a select number of applicants who are facing the same shortage of local distance events to keep their streaks alive. If a small, lightly managed run with veteran runners in December sounds like a fit for you, join us this year. So that's what I'm up to. It's an abundant life. I don't have to stop and ask permission. If I can create my own race, I just have to do it. <laughs> the way I'm able to continue to run and have adventures is simply that I believe I can, and I do it. 
And frankly, the biggest challenges we face in this era, in this season of our lives, is that there is too much abundance. The challenge is how to focus your energy on the handful of things that bring value to you and your family and your community. The millennials talk about FOMO, fear of missing out. That's a classic example of how abundance makes us crazy. There's too many good choices, and we either freeze in place, overwhelmed, or flit from thing to thing like deranged dilettantes. And then I'm out for a walk with Buddy in my woods, and with the dry sun filtering through the green tree canopy and falling mottled in the leaf litter, the old stone walls delineating sheep pastures that long ago gave way to forest. We stop to breathe in that good air. We listen to the skittering of squirrels and the chittering of birds. And we know what is abundance. So think about the abundance in your life, and I'll see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him Coming to you live from Orlando, Florida, up all night with Run Run Live. Stay with me now as we listen to the mellow, soothing sounds. (laughs) It's the Wolfman. All right.